Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Wednesday night's ruling by a three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, composed of two judges appointed by Trump, who stayed Judge Cannon's ruling blocking the FBI investigation into classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago and skewered her findings in a blistering order. Joining us is Adam Klasfeld, Managing Editor at Law and Crime, who was previously a reporter for Courthouse News Service, where he had been covering the Russian probe and international money laundering, among other legal matters. We will discuss his article at Law and Crime, Judge Overseeing Mar-a-Lago Case Trim's Special Master Ruling Within Hours of the 11th Circuit Order, and the Special Master Judge Deary's Order that Trump's lawyers have to put up or shut up about wild assertions that the FBI planted documents at Mar-a-Lago, a claim Trump made in a friendly and loopy interview he did with the fawning Fox host Sean Hannity, at which Trump said he could declassify documents by thinking about them. Then we'll speak with a lawyer for some of the Venezuelan asylum seekers who were victims of Governor DeSantis's sadistic trolling, to find out whether the hateful thug vying for the Republican nomination for president broke the law. Joining us is Jacob Love, a staff attorney at Lawyers for Civil Rights, where he develops litigation across a wide range of civil rights issues, including housing justice and voting rights. Jacob also coordinates the largest and oldest nonpartisan election protection campaign in New England and previously worked as a housing attorney at the Legal Aid Society in New York City. Then finally, we'll assess how close Iran is to another revolution as thousands take to the street across the country in protests led by young women in the seventh day of demonstrations against the murder of a young woman in the custody of the morality police. Joining us is Mazia Beirouz, an Iranian-American historian who was born in Tehran and has taught at UC Berkeley and Stanford University and is currently a professor of history at San Francisco State University. He's the author of two books on the history of the Iranian left, Rebels with a Cause, followed by Perspectives on the History of Rebels with a Cause in Iran, and his forthcoming book is Iran at War, Interaction with the Modern World and the Struggle with Imperial Russia. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Adam Klasfeld, who is the managing editor at Law and Crime News. He was previously a reporter for Courthouse News Service. He had been covering the Russia probe and international money laundering and other legal matters. He has an article at Law and Crime, Judge Overseeing Mar-a-Lago Case Trim's Special Master Ruling Within Hours of 11th Circuit Order. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adam Klasfeld. Thank you for having me, Ian. Thanks for joining us, Adam. And it looks as though the 11th Circuit, the three judges, two appointed by Trump, one by Obama, really did sort of slap down U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon 
and she quickly responded. What's the sense in the legal community about uh, this situation and the qualifications, if you will, that this judge has? Well, this is an absolutely blistering ruling. It was a per curiam order, meaning that all three judges wrote as one voice in essentially gutting every finding that Judge Cannon had made favoring former President Trump in this case. And the discussions that I've had with legal experts widely recognize that this is a lacerating order. They One told me that this essentially restores the rule of law governing this case because another legal expert I spoke to said this original ruling would, by Judge Cannon was far out of the mainstream, uh, questioning, for example, whether classified markings mean that the documents are classified, that these weren't particularly complicated legal issues before a fairly deferential order in their view toward former President Trump. Now, the 11th Circuit just very quickly and very sharply overturned those findings and essentially gave the government everything they asked for. So to put this in a little bit of context here, the government's stay uh, was very limited in its scope. All that they asked for in terms of the stay of the original ruling was limiting the part of the order that pertained to the 100, roughly, documents with classified markings uh, up to top secret and above. Now, the order by the 11th Circuit now allows them to use those documents in their ongoing investigation uh, related to the raid and also allows them to basically uh, taking down the part of the order that would have forced them to disclose those documents to the special master for review. So they got everything they asked for. They won on every sort of significant argument for the 11th Circuit, the entire debate uh, as to that Trump had put out there that he had somehow declassified the documents. We learned from Hannity his view on that a little bit more. But that was absolutely skewered by the 11th Circuit. They basically said that, one, there's no evidence before us, and two, it's a, in their words, a red herring that it has no relation to the investigation by the government, for example. The, we know for from the affidavit that the charges that they had listed on the application for the search warrant were the Espionage Act, obstruction of justice, and a removal of uh, government records. Now, none of these had any sort of bearing on the classification status. And in fact, the Espionage Act was created before the advent of the modern classification system. So the 11th Circuit ruling absolutely just laid waste to the arguments brought forth uh, in regard to the classification markings. But beyond the 100 classified documents that the FBI and the DOJ are now free to investigate the essential hold that she put on the investigation itself. 
So the investigation, the injunction only related to the government's use of those documents that were marked classified. So now the government's hands are freed toward that. They could use those documents uh, in their ongoing investigation. There are there's still pending the review, the uh, 10,000 plus documents that do not have classification markings, which, by the way, does not mean they are not, in fact, classified. The special master's order will have to play out before that part of the investigation uh, will resume. But what the government wanted, the part of the stay order that they sought and obtained had to do with the ones that have the classification markings. Now, uh, because of the stay order that has now been uh, followed by Judge Cannon, the government's hands are free to look at that, to follow leads, and to coordinate with the intelligence community on their report. Because remember, uh, one of the DOJ's arguments on this is that the two investigations were inseparable. Judge Cannon's order purported to allow the intelligence community to perform a damage assessment. And while holding off on the DOJ, basically enjoining and blocking the DOJ from using the documents for their investigation, the DOJ responded, you can't do that. One of them affects the other. And so as a result of the 11th Circuit stay, it frees up the DOJ, certainly, the federal prosecutors, but it also frees up the intelligence community because the DOJ said that the intelligence community, in trying to find out the damage of this, needed to rely on the DOJ's resources and investigation to even get at that question, that they aren't, you can't draw the line, they said, that Judge Cannon did that these were separate probes, that they were intricately connected. And you mentioned the special master, uh, Judge Raymond Deary. He filed today, Thursday, that the Trump team, their lawyers, have to back up any claims of FBI planting evidence, which again seems to be right across the right-wing news media platforms. Um, That's the way that they're excusing Trump's behavior by saying that the FBI planted documents and Trump himself in his bizarre interview, if that's how you describe it, with Sean Hannity, the sort of love fest that they had, Trump said, did they drop anything into those piles of materials taken from Mar-a-Lago or did they do it later? So what's the sense then of uh, what Deary's up to? He seemed to be pretty expeditious you know, basically saying to the Trump lawyers, put up or shut up. You know, if if these documents are declassified, then you have to prove that they're declassified. So show us the proof. And they will, so far have been unable to do so. So the I was actually in court uh, earlier this week when Judge Deary held his initial conference. And we know that he was very skeptical of the claims of declassification. He repeatedly pressed the lawyers and said, as far as I'm concerned, the classification markings are the end of it. Now we know as a result of the 11th Circuit ruling, that's not on his plate anymore. He doesn't have to deal with that. Some of the other claims that have 
bubbled around the right-wing media sphere, the so-called, you know, the allegations of planting and whatnot, that actually hasn't really entered into the litigation. His lawyers have, it's very interesting. It's kind of like what we saw after the 2020 election, where you'd have the lawyers saying one thing in front of uh, Four Seasons landscaping uh, and another thing in court. And so you never had one of Trump's attorneys say in court in this case that the FBI is planting evidence. That's just something that plays well on uh, certain right-wing stations. But the lawyers are making, they've never even claimed in court that any of the documents were declassified. All that they're saying in court is that they may have been declassified. And Judge Deary, a very experienced judge, longtime judge in the Eastern District of New York, uh, said, you know, you're entitled to, he didn't use these words, but essentially play that game. You do not have to disclose that information at this time. But because you're not disclosing it, the prima facie evidence, the evidence right before my face suggests that this is classified. Uh, and luckily for him, in terms of his workload, he doesn't have to deal with it anymore because the 11th Circuit took it off his plate. A very interesting thing in Judge Deary's order, uh, at the bottom of it, he sets up another status conference for early next month, October 6th at 2 p.m., uh, and that, so we'll learn more about his review. But the crux of the review that really got all eyes on it, the status of this, the fate of these classified documents up to and above top secret are no longer the ones that he's inspecting. It's now a broader subset, more than 11,000 documents. And who knows, just because, again, to emphasize, they don't have classification markings do not mean that uh, they are not sensitive or ones that would be of interest to the government. So there's still some sort of high stakes there, but that will be playing out early next month. And he set forth a pretty vigorous schedule, brisk schedule to get through this. And of course, the 11th Circuit scrutiny isn't over. The stay is imposed, but now the challenge to the order also goes ahead. Well, there was also something of a footnote in the 11th Circuit opinion that I thought was fairly important, and that is that the three-judge panel rejected very clearly uh, claims made by Trump and his supporters, including the 11 attorney generals from red states led by the attorney general of the state of Texas, they filed this unusual and strange kind of Friends of the Court brief on behalf of uh, these red states, claiming that this whole issue was going on at Mar-a-Lago was a harassment from the Biden administration, a political harassment. And that was fairly substantially shut down by them, by the 11th Circuit. It was the... You know, as I was saying earlier, the 11th Circuit was fairly blistering. You know, we they called the declassification issue a red herring. They reiterated Judge Cannon's ruling that, remember, it was uh, former President Trump tried to argue that 
this was a callous disregard of his civil rights. And it was Judge Cannon who wouldn't even go that far. And the 11th Circuit said, essentially, she's right, <laughs> that there was no showing by Trump that anything uh, was was far amiss, let alone not completely on the up and up. Uh, so the 11th Circuit pretty much upholds that finding by Judge Cannon, which they essentially otherwise, in other respects, entirely lacerated. So is there a, any pathway for an appeal to the Supreme Court here from Trump? Well, we'll see what he does. We know that there isn't a pathway for him to appeal it uh, within. There's sometimes other appellate, intermediate appellate courts have uh, en banc review where you go before the full panel. Because of the 11th Circuit's uh, particular rules, he can't do that for a stay order. So his only chance is a Supreme Court. But most legal experts who I know basically think that that would be a dead end and he wouldn't even be able to, you know, it would probably go the way of a lot of his election challenges before the Supreme Court that unceremoniously uh, set aside in rapid order. And even this Supreme Court, I mean, obviously they did rule on the archives matter, getting the, getting the, papers in the first place, and the only dissent came from Clarence Thomas, whose wife, uh, Ginny Thomas, now finally is apparently going to be appearing before the January the 6th House Committee. Right, right. When it rains, it pours in terms of the news cycle, and it has been a rainy season. Well, <laughs> just to finish up on that, uh, what did you make of the New York Attorney General's uh, extraordinary press conference yesterday and her lawsuit? Well, it has been a, as she noted, a nearly three-year investigation, and I saw it play out in court many times, up into, up to and including the time when a Manhattan judge found Trump in contempt for uh, failing to comply with the subpoena. So we've seen bits and trickles, for, and we knew that it was leading up to something because some of the extraordinary details that we've heard yesterday about inflating the size of the triplex, we, we've seen bits and pieces of it. But of course, we didn't see the full 200 plus page complaint that came down yesterday with the referrals to uh, federal and state authorities. And uh, most legal commentators who I've spoken to and, and analysts say this is a very dangerous case for Trump's businesses, that this goes to that, you know, he can essentially be barred from, and I'm kind of pulling up the phrasing of the requested relief here uh, to permanently bar him and his children from serving as an officer or director on any New York corporation. And that's just one of the extraordinary uh, requested relief. There's putting the revocable trust, replacing its current trustees with new independent trustees, which would essentially knock him out of his entire corporate empire that, uh, you know, he has dozens, if not hundreds of corporations, but most of them go toward this trust. And so it's one that uh, he is 
very much uh, lashing out in reaction to it uh, because I think he recognizes this one could really hurt him financially and stop him from being an officer in his corporation uh, permanently in the place where he established them. Yeah, so it's not as if they're going to put an orange jumpsuit on Trump, but they're putting an orange jumpsuit on the Trump organization, and it's likely to literally be dissolved. I thank you to, for joining us, um, Adam Classfeld. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Adam Classfeld, who is the managing editor at Law and Crime News. He previously was a reporter for the Courthouse News Service, where he'd been covering the Russia probe and international money laundering, along with other legal matters. And he has an article at Law and Crime, Judge Overseeing Trump's Mar-a-Lago Case Trims Special Master Ruling Within Hours of 11th Circuit Order. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with a lawyer for some of the Venezuelan asylum seekers who were victims of Governor DeSantis's sadistic trolling. It's like being on trial for your life with a public defender. Let the jury fill the seats up and start the court calendar off with docket number nine millimeter. All rise. The Honorable Jay-Z preside. Instead of a mallet, I hold a tool. All objections overruled. Save your opening arguments. Hope you understand it. Two guns, right over left. That's how I cross-examine. Like Tom Cruise, popping with the top gun. You lose. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jacob Love, a staff attorney at Lawyers for Civil Rights, where he develops litigation across a wide range of civil rights issues, including housing, justice, and voting rights. Jacob also coordinates the largest and oldest nonpartisan election protection campaign in New England and previously worked as a housing attorney at the Legal Aid Society in New York City. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Love. Thanks very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And your organization, Lawyers for Civil Rights, have been handling the case of these asylum seekers, from mostly from Venezuela, who were shipped from Texas to Florida, then on to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts under false pretenses. And apparently they had already been processed down in San Antonio, Texas. So... By moving them, they lost their place in the queue, if you will, to be processed legally. The right-wing media, Fox News, etc., are referring to them as illegal immigrants, but they're not illegal, are they? Well, so just uh, let me let me sort of like go back to the beginning there, uh, just to clarify something. Um, so I don't know if it's accurate necessarily to say that they lost their place in the queue. Um, it is correct to say that they had all been processed by federal immigration officials and that they all have ongoing either check-ins with federal immigration officials or hearings scheduled in immigration proceedings. Um, and so uh, by virtue of the fact that they were flown thousands of miles away from the location of those proceedings, this scheme interferes with uh, with those federal immigration proceedings. Um, and uh, to the extent they're being characterized as illegal, um, I am not their immigration attorney, but but generally speaking, I would say that that is incorrect. So what then are the legal remedies for redress here? Because the California governor is referring to what happened as kidnapping. I mean, what what kind of laws were broken by governors Abbott and DeSantis? So I am not a criminal lawyer. Um, we filed a civil 
lawsuit on behalf of our clients seeking redress as part of the civil court system. You know, any criminal issues are totally separate and apart from from our case. So I can't speak to uh, whether or not criminal laws were broken here. That's not my area. But um, but as to our lawsuit, uh, we are seeking three specific kinds of relief. We're seeking um, uh, injunctive relief uh, to to um, end the program permanently. We're seeking declaratory relief from the judge, uh, and we're hoping that she will declare uh, the law, uh, sorry, the policy unconstitutional. And we're also seeking monetary damages for the defendant's tortious conduct, including the fraud and deceit that you mentioned. So in terms of fraud and deceit, what kind of proof is there? My understanding is that a woman called Perla gave these Venezuelan asylum seekers uh, McDonald's vouchers and presented some documentation from the state of Massachusetts that apparently was fraudulent or forged. To what extent were they tricked? So this entire scheme was based on misrepresentation. Um, All of my clients were approached at or near a shelter, a, a migrant shelter in San Antonio, Texas, Um, They were approached because of their immigration status, because they were clearly vulnerable, because they lacked resources, and they were offered a series of things that they would receive uh, in Massachusetts or or in this sort of general sanctuary destination um, that that they were being uh, induced to fly to. Uh, And those things include immigration assistance, uh, schooling for their children, housing, work. Um, all kinds of things. Um, and of course, um, as has you know uh, been clear publicly since this whole thing played out, none of those things had actually been secured for them. They were dropped off in Martha's Vineyard uh, with no notice. Uh, no one was expecting them and nothing had been secured for them. So they were essentially, you know, as part of this scheme, uh, they were left on a tarmac and the people who orchestrated this scheme uh, did so with wanton indifference for what was going to happen to these people when they got there. Um, the only reason they were able to receive resources is because local groups, who again had no warning, uh, rallied in support of them. Um, but you know, initially when they, when they got there, it was chaos uh, and there was panic um, because no one was waiting for them, and the resources they had been promised weren't there. Um, And to answer the other part of your question, which is what evidence is there of these misrepresentations? Well, first, uh, and, you know, this is this is important. Witness testimony, victim testimony is is uh, an important form of evidence uh, in in the court system. Um, We have heard a very consistent theme uh, from the migrants, um, from our clients um, about what happened to them. They were all they all told a very similar story about how they were approached while they were vulnerable and they were offered a series of things that, you know, has not been provided to them. And there was, it, it, as it appears, there was never any intention of providing those things to them. On top of that, I think maybe you have seen the consent forms um, that the Florida governor released. We actually think those are evidence in our favor. Um, they demonstrate the extent of the fraud and misrepresentation here. For one thing, they're not official Florida documents and don't mention anything about the state's involvement, despite that the state had taken credit for this scheme. Among many other injuries our clients experienced here, one is that they didn't consent to being used as political pawns and thrust into the national debate about immigration. Uh, And for another, there's material information missing from the Spanish translation. I'm not sure if you've seen those forms. 
but specifically the Spanish translation doesn't say anything about Massachusetts. Um, the forms also don't undercut any of the other material misrepresentations that uh, we allege in the complaint um, were made to induce my clients onto the planes, uh, which, as I mentioned before, those include assurances related to housing, employment, schooling, and immigration assistance. But is there anything to link this mysterious woman, Perla, who's disappeared, who lured these asylum seekers? Is there anything linking her to DeSantis? Well, anything leaking, what exactly do you mean? So the Florida governor has taken credit for orchestrating the entire scheme. Uh, you know, he, he, he has been very clear from the very beginning uh, that this was a state of Florida operation, that this was an operation being led by his office, that funds had been allocated by the, the Florida state legislature to make all of this happen. Um, I think as we allege in the complaint, um, a significant amount of money was paid to uh, contractors and to, um, I believe, the, the company that chartered the flights uh, to make all of this happen. Um, so, you know, very, very strong circumstantial evidence. You know, essentially the governor has admitted um, to, to orchestrating this scheme that it was that it was all part of a plan uh, to send um, the migrants to Martha's Vineyard to make a point. But specifically, the fraud part of it is what I was interested in, seeing how you could pin the fraud on DeSantis. He's taking political credit for dumping asylum seekers on greener pastures in sanctuary states to make a point. And they're doing the same, of course, at the residence of the vice president. And also, uh, it looks as if they'll start dumping people in Delaware, the home state of President Biden. So I'm just interested in getting your take on that, Jacob Love. Is there a link to the actual fraud part of it? Or could uh, DeSantis be held responsible for well, more facts will certainly come out in discovery um, as uh, we move forward in the litigation. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, when we filed the case, uh, we, we left many of the defendants who were part of the scheme unnamed. Um, but, you know, it appears, um, based on what we allege, that all of this was part of a concerted scheme, that all of this uh, was sort of tied together, um, and, and that the folks who are on the ground recruiting um, you know, the facts as alleged uh, at least strongly suggest and, and we think the evidence, you know, ultimately will show um, that the, 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 the recruiters on the ground were agents um, of, of uh, you know, the, the, uh, the governor's office. They were either contractors or, um, you know, they were all working uh, in partnership uh, to put this thing together. You know, at least that that is what we understand um, from the facts that we've uncovered, from the facts that are alleged in the complaint, and then from, from our conversations with our clients. And what do you know about the th lawsuit or the threats to sue from the Bexar County Sheriff Javier Salazar down in San Antonio? Are you coordinating with him, or is he out on his own? That's totally separate. Uh, we have nothing to do uh, with any uh, criminal investigation. We're focused uh, exclusively on our civil lawsuit. So... The feds aren't involved, even though you would think that most of this involves the federal government. Has, it, has anybody uh, approached the Department of Justice? Are they involved in any way? So, so one of our claims is that, um, that, that we've brought in our case uh, is that uh, this scheme 
impeded federal immigration law. Uh, and the federal government is the sole arbiter of immigration in the United States. Um, as to whether or not the Justice Department is involved, uh, I do not know. Again, we are focused exclusively on our civil lawsuit and any uh, you know, other investigations are totally separate. So when do you get your day in court? Uh, so, well, we, we've already filed the complaint. Uh, the, the judge, we also filed a motion to allow our clients to proceed under pseudonyms, uh, which means to proceed anonymously. Uh, the judge granted that motion. And part of the reason we filed that motion is because our clients feel uh, that going forward, if their identities were revealed, they would be unsafe. And that's for a host of reasons. Um, so the judge already granted that motion. Um, uh, sometime in the next few weeks, uh, we uh, are fairly certain that the defendants will enter an appearance in the case. Um, we'll ultimately file a response to our complaint. Uh, and, then the, and then the litigation will start to move forward after that. And this is all happening in Boston? Yes, federal district court in Boston. So it is in the federal courts? That's correct. So what's then the role of people like the governor of California? Are they sort of amicus briefs, or what support are you getting beyond the fact that you're a non-profit, aren't you, Lawyers for Civil Rights? Yes, that's correct. We're a non-profit legal organization. Right. So is anybody else sort of helping you out? or at least, you know, in an amicus way? Uh, well, so, yeah, I can't speak to whether or not anyone is going to seek to intervene or, or file amicus briefs. Um, we will have more news uh, going forward as things develop on, um, you know, how our team is going to be structured going forward. There's lots of internal conversations about that. Um, but, yeah, as of right now, um, the folks that have entered appearances are the only attorneys on the case. Um, and if and when that changes, um, uh, you will see it on the docket. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Jacob Love, tell us about your clients, the Venezuelan asylum seekers. My understanding is that over 6 million Venezuelans have left their country because of the appalling mismanagement of the government by Maduro and the corruption and the crime. So many went into Colombia, which is pretty much overwhelmed, and then they make their way across through Central America up to the United States. And similarly, there are lots of refugees coming now from Nicaragua and from Cuba as well. So this is the new influx that's happening now. These aren't from Central America. So they make this long, long journey, which is pretty hazardous, and I can't imagine they have many resources, having to pay smugglers and stuff like that, so by the time they get to the United States, they've got to be in pretty bad shape. So tell us about your clients. Not, I don't want their names, obviously, but, but how are they doing and what condition are they in? Uh, so um, as many as you, I'm sure you've heard, um, they are on a base um, on Cape Cod. And just to give you a little bit of background, yes, all of the individually named plaintiffs in the complaint fled Venezuela. They had long, perilous journeys to get to the United States. It was extremely difficult to get here. Um, you know, I think uh, as we discuss in the complaint, one of our clients was assailed and kidnapped in Mexico. And all of these people eventually made it into the United States. After they were processed by federal immigration officials, they went to uh, shelter into the shelter system in San Antonio, Texas. They bounced around churches 
And those those shelters in Texas are not a permanent solution. And when they were approached as part of this scheme, they no longer had shelter options. They had no consistent source of food. They had no work. Their children are out of school. And so they were approached at their most vulnerable. Um, and as far as we understand it, they were specifically approached because they are vulnerable, because they are immigrants, because of their race and national origin. They were targeted for disparate treatment as part of this scheme. And that's why it's so abhorrent, not only ethically, but also as we make the case in the complaint uh, legally. So this is a, it's almost arbitrary cruelty on the part of DeSantis and Abbott, the governors. No, uh, so no, I just pushed back on that. As we allege in the complaint, this was not arbitrary. This was targeted uh, specifically based on on their vulnerable immigration status, their race, their national origin. These people were picked out to make a political point. Right. Yeah, arbitrary is not the right word, but they're playing to a gallery. I mean, these are, these are politicians who engage in the politics of division. Their supporters are enjoying the pain that these poor immigrants are going through, and they enjoy trolling liberals. It's all about owning the libs, is it not? That's the whole point of sending these asylum seekers to sanctuary cities. Well, yeah, so it it wouldn't be appropriate for me to comment on the politics. Um, I think we can all agree that that this this whole scheme was to to send a political message and that it was a political stunt. Um, I'm focused on my clients. Uh, My clients were the victims here. They're the ones who were injured by this in all the different ways that we've discussed. Uh, And we hope that, you know, as part of this case, uh, they will be able to get redressed, uh, redress uh, in the American court system. And our goal is to permanently stop this policy and to get our clients compensated for for the injuries they've suffered. Jacob Love, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Jacob Love, who's a staff attorney at Lawyers for Civil Rights, where he develops litigation across a wide range of civil rights issues, including housing justice and voting rights. Jacob also coordinates the largest and oldest nonpartisan election protection campaign in New England, and he previously worked as a housing attorney at the Legal Aid Society in New York City. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing how close Iran is to another revolution as thousands take to the streets across the country in protests led by young women. I was burned out from exhaustion, buried in the hail, poisoned in the bushes and blown out on the trail, hunted like a crocodile, ravaged in the corn. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mazia Behouz, who is an Iranian-American historian who was born in Tehran and has taught at UC Berkeley and Stanford University and is currently a professor of history at San Francisco State University. He's the author of two books on the history of the Iranian left, Rebels with a Cause, followed by Perspectives on the History of Rebels with a Cause in Iran, a collection of interviews and articles on leftist movements in Iran that were translated into Persian and published in Iran. And his forthcoming book is Iran at War, Interaction with the Modern World and the Struggle with Imperial Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mazia Behrouz. 
Thank you, Ian. Nice to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Mazi. And I'm hearing from sources inside of Iran that the situation is quite revolutionary, that all across the country, in hundreds of cities, people are demonstrating, largely led by young women who are burning their hijabs. Obviously, tomorrow, uh, Friday, is when the regime has its prayers, etc. They'll come back with, with a vengeance, I imagine. But what are you hearing from your sources? Is this really a situation where you have a, essentially what seems like a revolution brewing? Uh, not quite. I, I think a revolution needs to have a, at least an outlook of a revolutionary leadership, which I do not see at this point. And uh, although I uh, do understand and appreciate the anger that is causing these demonstrations, and of course, uh, the, that the fact that women are spearheading this type of demonstrations, but uh, the regime, uh, you know, the opposition does not have arms, does not have a national organization, does not have a leadership. Uh, there have been other demonstrations before in 2009 and after that, and the demonstrations are getting more serious, are becoming more serious, more connected to each other. Uh, people who have uh, uh, grievances in, uh, for their pay, like teachers and workers, middle-class people, uh, now women uh, have joined in after 43 years of mandatory dress code. And uh, so on one hand, what we see is real and it's uh, exciting in a way, but I doubt that uh, this is going to lead to any fundamental change immediately. Perhaps it would lay the foundation for some sort of platform, for some, some sort of future uh, change. But what it does show is the breadth of disgust at this regime that the Iranian people have, particularly the young and the educated. And they seem to be just absolutely sick of these clerical parasites uh, who have taken over the country and imposed all of these strictures like the morality police. Correct. But let us not forget that morality police exists in other countries such as Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia. And uh, the morality police uh, has this strict uh, interpretation of what uh, religion is and what religious uh, behavior should be. Uh, and they, they, they implement it. And in Iran, of course, it has been going on for a long time. And it seems to be a tipping point, at least when it comes to the issue of veil uh, and the, the, the killing of uh, uh, that young woman uh, in Tehran. And then, you know, uh, over 22 people have been killed ever since. So, uh, yes, I agree with you. But uh, where it will be going, where it is going, I'm, I'm, I, it's very difficult to predict. I, I doubt that in the short run it's going to result into any major change. But how do you deal with a situation where, except for people in the country and those people in the regime itself, uh, the Basij, uh, Pazdaran, uh, the Revolutionary Guards, if the army doesn't stick with the re regime, then, then it may be, that may be the tipping point. It just seems that 
I don't know how you can go back to business as usual in a country where the majority hate the theocracy. Uh, I think the government, the state, uh, knew fairly for for a long time now that public support has, uh, for the most part, has vanished uh, ever since two thousand nine. I think they, they, they realize that because when the elections were held last year for presidency and for the parliament, the way they uh, disqualified members of other factions loyal to the Islamic Republic, such as moderates and reformers, tells me that they are content with the base, the social base that supports them. Uh, for whatever reason. And that social base may not be very large, maybe 5-10%, but they are content with having that rather than trying to bring a larger part of population behind behind the state. Uh, They have given up on that. I think that is pretty much clear by now. So then you've got 5 or 10% uh, popular support for the theocracy, and they just indefinitely suppress the uh, 90%? Well, uh, the 5 or 10% are connected to the regime, are loyal to the, to the government for a variety of reasons. Some of them really sincerely for religious reasons, some of them for financial reasons, some of them uh, for other reasons. So uh, can a 10% uh, suppress 90% when that 10% has all the uh, equipment it needs for suppression? It has the arms, it has the guns, it has uh, it has the organization, it has the leadership, it has the financial support. So uh, it is possible, yes. I mean, it has been done in other countries. Uh, it was done in Myanmar. Uh, it was done in Egypt. Uh, uh, you do not have to have a large social base. You just need to have a strong uh, social support, uh, albeit uh, a minority, uh, to maintain power. They have done it uh, in other countries, and I think it will be done uh, here too. Uh, this is a short run. This is in the short run. The question is, uh, would this also work in the long run? If um, change of behavior, if the regime doesn't change its behavior, and to this date, it does not seem that it is willing uh, to do that. I don't know if you have heard or not, uh, Christian Amanpour, I think, wanted to interview the Iranian president who's in New York City. And because she refused to wear the veil, uh, he canceled the interview. So it doesn't seem to me that there are ready to step back, perhaps because if they step back on one issue, then it will kind of open the Pandora's box. Maybe it's because of that. But they are not showing any retreat, any sign of retreat. Right, but when revolutions happen, they always catch the government by surprise. So it's obviously a very rotten situation where you've got a government that oppresses and lies. The way they've lied to the family of this young woman is just so disgusting. They clearly beat her up in the van. They pepper sprayed her younger brother who was with her at the metro station when she was arrested for not for having showing a little bit of hair under her uh, hijab. 
Then they tried to say that she'd had an operation when she was young, which is a complete lie. They wouldn't let the father see the body. I mean, it's a horrible regime. And you were in in Iran just a couple of weeks ago. What do the, the young Iranians tell you? How do they see their future? Well, I think there is a lot of uh, resentment. I was in Tehran. I didn't travel outside Tehran. But uh, to whoever I talked to, they were very angry with the situation. Uh, you know, hijab or the, the veil is one issue, but uh, economically, the general population uh, from middle class down is uh, under a lot of pressure. And uh, the, you know, uh, inflation is over 50%. Uh, uh, salaries don't uh, really uh, match the inflation. Life is very difficult for a large number of people. So there's a lot of resentment from that perspective. And then also uh, for some people, especially uh, filmmakers, authors, uh, the, the issue of censorship, it has become much worse. Uh, and uh, so you have that, uh, uh, the artist community, the art community, uh, the literary community. Uh, I saw, I saw uh, really no, uh, uh, no meaningful support coming from among the people that I uh, interact with. Uh, and uh, even when you know I, I, I visited the bazaar, uh, you know, and uh, and other parts of Tehran, there's a lot of resentment there too. So, is it possible then? I've heard the argument that if the JCPOA, the the Iran nuclear deal, is back on track, and that the sanctions are lifted, that if the economy improves for the average Iranian, then they might actually be more ripe for revolution. It, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but I guess the theory is that if you're really s- struggling just to make ends meet on a daily basis and put food on the table, you don't have time for revolution. But if things get better, then you maybe have time for revolution. Do you buy that theory in in relationship to uh, Iran? Uh the problem of poverty, general poverty in the country, is only partially because of uh, the sanctions. Uh, the other side of the coin is uh, uh, the general mismanagement in, in the country. And uh, the emphasis is put on managers who are loyal ideologically rather than uh, capable uh, technically. So this has been going on for the past 43 years and it's still ongoing. Uh, so you, when you look at the top managers uh, of ministries, of companies, of uh, other governmental institutions, uh, you see the criteria for selecting them is really uh, the, uh, the, the, the degree of their loyalty, ideological loyalty. So that is part of also that partially explains the economic situation, not just the sanctions. But you're right, if sanctions are lifted, um, uh, then uh, the economic situation would would improve. Uh, The question is, would the improvement of economic situation result into more successful vocal protests? You know, I, I still agree with what Lenin said. Uh, you know, when the revolution happens, revolutions happen when the, the leadership is not able to rule, continue to rule the way it used to be. And the ones under 
are not willing to accept the situation anymore. Uh, have we reached that that stage? Uh, I do not believe so. Uh, I, I, I think these demonstrations are still sporadic and uh, and, uh, and there's a lot of anger. There was one uh, similar situation two years ago when they raised, three years ago when they raised the, par, the price of gasoline. Uh, and uh, uh, but it, after a while, it uh, it, it is suppressed uh, violently, and then gradually it, uh, it everything calms down until the next round and the next the next trigger inflaming the situation. It is my understanding, it's my take, that the government is is content with this way of doing things. That is to say, uh, uh, implementing, uh, uh, executing its version of what is good for society, uh, foreign policy, morality. And if it faces uh, challenges, then it would use uh, a heavy hand to deal with them. This is what it has been doing for a long time now. So just in the last uh, few minutes then, Mazia Behouz, since you've uh, written about the history of the Iranian left, obviously the the Iranian left was wiped out by the revolution that brought about Khomeini and this theocracy. But did it have to be that way? I mean, Iran was largely secular until the Iranian revolution in uh, 1979. Could it have gone another way? I mean, I guess I've heard theories that the the lists of all the members of the Tudor Party, the communists, were given to the to the clerics and they executed everybody. What's the true story here about why this revolution had to end up? It was largely secular, driven by secular forces, but then the country was captured by a theocracy. I think one reason was, you know, uh, the people who took over the revolutionaries, the Islamic revolutionaries uh, under Ayatollah Khomeini, they were very popular at the beginning of the revolution, and uh, a large portion of the population supported them. Uh, Yes, the secularist movements, the left, uh, they tried to, you know, slow down uh, the process of uh, total domination of society by one group, uh, the the government, uh, and they failed. Uh, They failed because they were disunited. Uh, They they failed because they they had a smaller, much smaller popular support. And they failed because they they fought with each other at the time that the regime was even attacking them. They were still fighting each other. You mentioned the Tudor Party. The Tudor Party uh, for example, during the first uh, three years of the revolution, uh, adamantly supported a, a faction within the Islamic Republic uh, at the cost of antagonizing the other leftist parties. So it was very difficult for these groups to unite with each other. Uh, even if they could, uh, they would have probably not been successful, but they could have delayed. They could have delayed uh, the, the, the total dismantlement of the uh, independent groups uh, to by a year or two had they supported democratic rights but the left really a big portion of it supported the, the government because it was anti-american so anti-imperialism took over uh, and another part was fighting against capitalism rather than fighting for democratic rights so democratic rights really uh, became very marginal 
in this equation and gave uh, the uh, the government the opening the possibility the uh, to uh, to suppress all of them and of course i explained these things in detail in my book my first book well mazia behrouz i thank you very much for joining us here today well thank you and again, I've been speaking with Mazia Behrouz, who's an Iranian-American historian who was born in Tehran and has taught at UC Berkeley and Stanford University and is currently a professor of history at San Francisco State University. He's the author of two books on the history of the Iranian left, Rebels with a Cause, followed by Perspectives on the History of Rebels with a Cause in Iran. And his forthcoming book is Iran at War, Interaction with the Modern World and the Struggle with Imperial Russia. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Oh